Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Black and Empowered podcast. I'm Karen Smith, an adjunct faculty member in the clinical psychology program at the University of Georgia and a member of the Racial Trauma Task Force out of the Empower Lab. This is my first time guest hosting our podcast, and I'm delighted to introduce today's conversation. In this special episode, Candace Dwyer, a second-year clinical science PhD student at Virginia Tech, is interviewing Aisha for an article spotlighting women principal investigators. It's a wonderful conversation about the bumps and curves along the many paths that black women travel toward the goal of becoming a PI. You'll hear them discuss the advantages of waiting for the graduate program that is the best fit for you. They also share strategies for coping with imposter syndrome, burnout, the particular pressure on women to prove it again and again and yet again. And you'll pump your fist when Aisha explains that if she's only publishing, she will perish. The power of collaboration, networking, and lifelong reciprocal mentoring relationships among women is the secret to success in getting grant funding, going up for tenure, disseminating research findings to the communities you are passionate about serving, and just staying sane in academia. Stay tuned for this uplifting interview. So hi, I'm Candace Dwyer. I am a second year clinical science student at Virginia Tech. I'm working with my mentors, Dr. Warren Bickle. We are studying addiction recovery and um, behavioral economics and translational medicine, um, translating some of our findings into new treatments for substance use disorders. Thank you so much for being here and doing this. And um, I'd love to hear for a start, what's your background and how did you end up as a PI in clinical science? Yeah, so my background, I guess I'll start when I was a second year grad student like you. Uh, So (laughs) I went to grad school at the University of South Carolina. I was in a clinical community program. And in grad school, I was studying parenting practices and racial socialization and how those impact childhood outcomes and adolescent risk behavior engagement. So currently what I'm doing at the University of Georgia as faculty is um, really translating all the results of the research that I started in grad school. So back then I was understanding within group differences and outcomes related to racial socialization and related to parenting. And now I'm integrating racial socialization and those parenting practices into cognitive behavioral therapies. So that's really exciting for me, making cognitive behavioral therapies more culturally appropriate for Black youth. And it really has been kind of a journey of understanding how, right, I can go from understanding differences in families and differences in outcomes to really seeing how that can impact people on the kind of treatment level. And then now I'm doing community-based research as well. So talking to individuals who are in treatment for child abuse, who are in treatment for witnessing domestic violence, so interpersonal traumas, and really um, making those within the community, um, those cognitive behavioral strategies more relevant and more effective as well. And then we're doing a little bit of public health research. So I recently got some funding that I'm just starting on kind of disseminating that work across the community population. So the impact of racial stress and racial trauma Um, and the benefits of racial socialization and trying to get people to 
utilize the conversations that they're already having around race and racial stressors to really benefit families across the community and across the population as well. That's so interesting. And especially to hear how far one of the things I know that I kind of struggled with when I was looking for a graduate program was identifying myself on this kind of basic to applied spectrum and where we fall. And I also found that I fall very to the applied side of the spectrum. And so it's so great to hear that you're translating this practice into the community and then even taking it further to the public health level. So I, I, I do feel really lucky in that regard. So my undergraduate training was in a clinical community psychology program. My doctoral degree is actually in clinical community psych. And then, right, yeah, I did an internship at the National Crime Victims Center, and we did treatment research, um, which I was really fortunate during. So internship is a clinical year. And I was fortunate to get a clinical internship that allowed for eight hours of protective research every week. Um, So that was a benefit for me. And then I did a postdoc at Yale University, and that postdoc was in public health. So I do think that, um, like you're saying, I've had to be really intentional along my path about making sure that I can keep my identity. And I, I do remember even in grad school, right, we had to declare, are you research focused or community focused? Are you clinical or are you community? And I was like, I thought this was clinical dash community. I thought I could do both. Um, so certainly, right, I felt the pull to either declare in one way or the other and always just felt, right, both aspects of, of my identity in that I do want to make that clinical impact. And it is important to know that the treatments we say, right, are working for everyone, but also, right, there's a huge community population who either don't have access to treatment or don't receive treatment or don't need treatment based on their kind of symptom expression, but they could also benefit from the cognitive and behavioral skills that we treat um, or that we teach in treatment. So that for me has been a balance that I've had to uh, really be cognizant of along my my journey. And it's good that you're thinking about that already as well. It's definitely kind of at the forefront of my mind, especially because in clinical science programs, we, um, and in clinical psychology programs as well, it's, we, we are going to school to get licensed and to learn to do assessment and practice and interventions. And yet we're also the main goal. And I feel like a lot of people don't know this This is something I've had to explain to a lot of my friends and family that it's actually a research-based program. Right. Right. Yes. And we're actually doing research and then to say, I want to be a clinician, you have to kind of hide it. Right. It feels like a secret. Totally. And when I was applying to programs, I remember uh, I did the whole, do I want to do neural or clinical, which I feel like is a very common uh, assessment or treatment. Jesus, right. We always have to pick one or the other. We always have to pick. And I remember on, I remember I did, I had to apply a couple of times to school three times. So for anyone out there, don't give up on applying. It takes more than one time to apply. The first year that I applied, I didn't get any interviews or anything. And the second year I applied, I got two interviews, but I was the alternate um, at one of them and didn't get into the other. And then the third round, I finally got in to yeah. a couple of programs. So it takes, a, yeah. it takes a lot to, to 
figure out even how to apply. Um, I'm actually a mentor for this really great nonprofit called Project Short, and they help students get navigate the application process. Right. Um, so yeah. I encourage anyone who's struggling with that to check out this organization. Um, they connect you with mentors in PhD programs in your discipline to help you navigate the application process. Oh, wow. Is that a nationwide program? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. I'm a McNair mentor, but it's very university specific. Um, and we also started a very similar program that, because you're right, there's so many barriers if you're not um, privy to the steps that it takes to get into graduate school. And also if you're not privy to what you should want to be after, right? Um, and just knowing, right, that there are different paths that you can take in that the clinical psychology degree, right, um, is a very specific one. So you're absolutely right in that you have to be aware early on what the end goal might look like so that you can even get in in the first place exactly so those three years were you getting research experience were you yes so okay. um the kind of i applied for one round before i got into my master's program and um i was not successful in that run but i did get admitted uh, to the master's program at columbia and so i did my master's at teachers college um, in clinical psychology and I was working as a research assistant um, in a few different labs there, actually. Right, right. Um, I just tried to kind of soak up as much yep. research experience as I could, which would be my recommendation to anybody applying. Um, At any so level. Right. Of graduate school. So um, that was definitely a huge benefit. And that also really helped me narrow what I was interested in and kind of made me more confident to be like, this is what I want to be doing. Right. And yeah. Yeah. And then the second time I applied was right after I graduated was that batch. And um, that was when I got a couple of interviews. Uh, but admittedly, I'm looking back on it. I'm actually really glad that I didn't get in at the time because it, I'm in the perfect fit for me now. And yeah. I don't think I would be in this program if it weren't for getting rejected from other programs, obviously. Right. Wow. So, yeah. After I got rejected the second time, I uh, took a research coordinator position at Stanford Medical School in the VA Palo Alto with my um, prior mentor, um, Dr. Claudia Padula. And it was there that I got exposed to um, addiction research, finally, because I knew I was really interested in that. Um, and so she's doing research on alcohol use disorder, uh, reward and emotion, neural circuitry in predicting relapse um, in veterans. And she has a very ambitious 50-50 um, goal in her research to represent female veterans, um, which are a really fast growing cohort of veterans. And I was able to help her recruit female veterans there. And that just was so rewarding. And that was kind of where I gained the piece of addiction recovery and women's health. And so if it weren't for that experience and getting rejected, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now, which is so rewarding to me. So that was kind of the stars really aligned in that way. Yeah, we always talk about fit and we always talk about prior experiences that speak to that fit. So I already know what your personal statement was the year that you got in. I already know what your research <laughs> statement was. And that's why you got in, right? So my trajectory was pretty much exactly opposite <laughs> in that I want to say even before high school, I knew that I was going to well, early on, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician. So my dad always says, you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. So I just chose pediatrician or pediatrics because I knew I wanted to work with kids. But right around high school, I learned about psychology and I learned about therapy, at least. 
And I was, you know, a little kid trying to do talk therapy with my friends and didn't know that's what I was doing. So I went into high school and I was already taking AP psychology classes just because I was so interested in it. I went into undergrad and I already knew, oh, I'm going to be a psychologist one day. And at this point, my dad was saying, wait, when are you going to become a real doctor, right? <laughs> like a medical doctor. But I was actually, so I said I was a McNair mentor currently, but in undergrad, I was a McNair scholar. And the McNair program gives you research experiences and it teaches you how to write a personal statement and it teaches you how to integrate that into a research statement. So I also, <laughs> I'm going to talk about that again, also uh, didn't want to go back home over the summer in undergrad. So I stayed on campus all undergrad and I graduated early and went immediately from undergrad into grad school. So I was the youngest one in my clinical clinical community program, but I also was the one that was saying, I know what I'm gonna do since I was born. And my mentor was the one who was saying, right, we're not doing that project now, right? You have to start with the basic science and you have to understand parenting in general. You can't just say, I'm gonna be, a, so I wanted to be a community-based researcher. I wanted to have a parenting program. My master's thesis, of course, I was going to do that program and test it. And she was like, ma'am, do you want to graduate? What do you mean you want to do an entire <laughs> program? So I had to scale it back a little bit. But now I am right able to do that programming and able to do that research. But certainly that story that you just told about how applying you do need to be able to say, right, these are my experiences and this is how it will lead to the future work that I want to do. And this is how it contributes to the work of the person who I'm applying to now, right? And that for me was something that even in grad school, right, I found my mentor on the faculty website and I saw the work that she was doing and I emailed her before I even applied and said, oh my God, I'm obsessed with you and I want to work with you and I introduced myself. And I think that's also what kind of helped me get in. But you're right that looking back, you're able to see, okay, this was the timing and it was a collection of experiences that I needed. And you went and you kept trying and you got in and look at you now, you are succeeding, you are not only succeeding, but you're doing extra work, right? So you're uh, writing this newsletter, you are making a name for yourself in the field, and that's because you've already taken that time to figure out who you want to be and the work that you want to do. And this is great. That's awesome. And that's, I mean, that's so nice of you to say thank you, because, you know, it's, as graduate students, we very frequently face the imposter syndrome. Even I was just doing some of my initial analyses for one of my first projects and like it's some stuff is not significant and so feeling that like oh I just spent like seven months doing this and it's not working and what do I do and like do I belong here um did I make kind of this huge mistake and you go through that kind of mental struggle yeah. and um yeah even when I was same thing when I was doing some of my personal statements it's I see kind of the iterations of what I went through and how different they ended up and yeah. how yeah, even learning how to do the personal statement. I remember one of the first pieces of feedback I got on my application um, was you definitely, someone literally had said to me, a faculty had said, this is neuroscience. And like, it's very obvious. You like think like a clinician, you want to do clinical work, like you want to do right. clinical research, right. you need to be in a clinical program. And that's when even that getting that piece of advice, like just that validation of, you know what, it's, you're right. That, that is what I want to do was very key, I think. And yes, the, especially with 
I, I resonate a lot with what you were saying in your process too. And it's like, it sounds like, it sounds like you were the solution focused friend, the problem solver. And then when you got to grad graduate school, you're like, I have all these amazing ideas and I want to implement them now. Right. And I feel like so many people in clinical programs relate to that. It's like, we came to school in large part, a lot of us, I feel like, because we like solving puzzles. We like doing the conceptualization piece. We like identifying solutions to things. And we're like, yeah, we want to implement this now and pushing through like what my mentor says, you have to move from tractable to esoteric. You can't start with more along. And so even that and pushing through that kind of burnout is hard. Yeah. And really just, I think for me, it's been kind of remembering that end goal, right? So even if I'm get tired with this first year project or my thesis or my dissertation, and I am getting burnt out, right? I do remember that that, that end goal is there. And even along the way, when you're tired and when you're questioning, like, do I belong here? Do I know what I'm doing? Imposter syndrome. What I'll say about that is it doesn't stop, right? So I still have it currently today, right? So it might be you get your first big grant and then you're like, wait, I, why did they give me money? <laughs> not knowing I'm a fraud and I have no idea what I'm doing, right? And I think that for me, it's just been radically accepting that every step of the way. Like I jump into my first grant and that first meeting with my PO, I'm going to say, hey, I have no, like, no idea what I'm doing. What I do know is that I want to do this work. And that's why I wrote the grant. So help me. <laughs> right. And I got my first grad students and I had to tell them, listen, we're here together. You guys have no idea how to make it through grad school, but I do. So I'm going to help you. Right. And I have no idea how to run this research and how to do this project that I said I'm going to tell people I'm doing, help me, right? And we're going to help each other make it through both of these processes. But it's absolutely a matter of with your other graduate students. Hey, I have no idea what I'm doing. Help me with the faculty around you. This is my, I just did my first year of graduate school in the middle of a pandemic. You're going to be on campus for the first time. Help me, right? Ask for help as much as you can, as much as you need it. And that's what's going to help you succeed. And that's what leads to excellent mentors that you'll be able to find because you've been able to say, help, I need a mentor, right? Latch on. And you'll be able to get that support from your mentors. And certainly that's what I will say my experience has been. It's just been not knowing what I'm doing, but accepting that and asking for help and getting a good team of people around me. And that's at graduate school and internship and postdoc as a faculty member. It's the same process over and over and over again, figuring it out. That's definitely so nice to hear with the perseverance and especially because it sounds like collaboration and continuing the mentorship model at every single stage, even down to the undergraduates in the lab helping has been really crucial to success in getting grant funding. And um, I feel like I was actually reading this thing recently when I was preparing for this newsletter that women self-cite less. Oh, wow. Also yeah. have smaller collaboration networks is wow. what I was reading. And Something else that I've heard from um, the, uh, one of the other faculty that I've interviewed for this position is that collaboration and building that network has been also so important to success and thriving in academia is that our field, she was saying that like we are taught that academia and these things are individual in a lot of ways. And really that is the opposite of the truth. It's that we right. 
all have strengths and weaknesses as a researcher right. and finding people to balance out your weaknesses is crucial to putting out good science and having a collaboration network at the faculty level and a mentor, a really amazing mentorship model throughout your lab is really important because every science is community-based and we're all putting it out together. Absolutely. Absolutely. My undergrads know to go to my grad students for help because my grad students know that the undergrads have an experience that one, they can actually help them navigate. So it gives them some sense of agency as well to say, okay, I at least know how to help you do what you're doing, right? And that also gives them the confidence when they need to ask for help from a postdoc or from even me, right? Then they're also able to say, I'm contributing down here and I'm helping someone get into graduate school, but also I'm helping my lab mentor now establish her lab. So when I'm establishing a lab, I know what that looks like. So they're going to have that experience. And I have that experience because my mentor took me on when she was first building her lab, right? And I'm able to say, okay, this is the benefit as a first year graduate student of helping my mentor build a lab. And I'm able to give that to them as well. They've helped me write million dollar grants. So now they know when it's time for them to write their first million dollar grant, they've done it before. Right, and that's because they've gotten that experience and undergrads as well, right? So they're able to say, oh, I helped a doctoral student on their master's thesis. So when it comes time for them to do a master's thesis, they say, oh, I've sat through these meetings before. I know how to coordinate a team, right? And they're able to say that they've had that experience before as well. But absolutely, you're right in that it's that kind of hierarchy that we establish in the lab that lets people help people as they get help as well. Yeah, and I... I definitely have received so much mentoring from the postdocs in my lab currently. Even my mentor at Stanford was so hands-on with giving me the skills and allowing me to do kind of independent work uh, that even from that, jumping from that PI level down to the undergraduate research coordinator level, that stepping stone level, it seems like the labs that are very successful are integrating mentorship at every level. Right. And yeah. it's so nice to see. I learned that from what like you we were saying about collaborations and support. So I learned that from my collaborators and my mentors who have taught me that you can't do it on your own, but certainly we work together now in writing groups and we maximize our productivity in that way. Right. So if I'm working on a publication or if I need help in a problem that I'm having with a lab member or a student, right? I'm able to go to my colleagues who are at the same level as me to get out more publications and to navigate those kind of stressors that we have as PIs, right? That grad students can't help navigate necessarily. So it is important to um, kind of continue that mentorship above myself, as well as that kind of equal level collaborations that really help I would say push mentoring forward, right? So we know how to do things better than how our mentors did things. And we're able to right, support each other in ways that allow us to really be more productive and, and feel more supportive. Because like we're saying, right, that imposter syndrome doesn't stop. And I have found that many of those groups that I end up working with end up being women, right? So they end up being women of color. They end up, end up being people who share common experiences who are also able to help, not only with the productivity, but also with the politics and the gender issues that happen in academia and then even productivity, right? So 
not working in isolation, learning that, okay, it is better to work amongst a team and to say, hey, I need a statistician, or hey, we're going to do this paper and you're going to be the methods person and you're going to work on the discussion. So how do you put a paper or a manuscript together? And learning things like that, I think has come from both those collaborations and those mentoring experiences that I've had. And, you know, that brings up a really good point because, and segues nicely, I was reading an article in preparing for this. It was from, it's from 2015, so it may be a little bit outdated. I should be transparent about that. But um, it identified a big reason why women are more likely to be pushed out of academia. And one of those reasons is that you, we have a prove it again problem where we kind of have to repeatedly prove ourselves to be seen as competent. Um, we have to do the same thing more times to be seen as competent in that skill. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that and how that might translate into potentially an increased pressure to publish or perish. There's this huge, huge thing in academia, for those who are unfamiliar, that if we're not writing and we're not publishing, we're not scientists. You're not productive and you will perish. Right. You will die. Right. (laughs) um, Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and if, if you have felt that and how you've overcome that. Yeah, so certainly the prove it again, I think, is uh, something that was difficult for me to get used to, right? So I'm used to saying, this is the problem, this is the work that needs to be done, and this is how it can be solved, so give me the money to do it, (laughs) right? But what we see in grant funding is that you have to prove it and prove it and prove it again, and you prove it by having a track record for publishing in that area. You prove it by getting pilot grants in that area. You prove it by doing talks in that area, right? You prove it and you prove it and you keep proving it. And you have to, in the six pages or 10 pages application, show that you've proven it and also show the problem and show all those things, right? And I think as uh, young researchers, certainly as young women researchers, our tendency is not to speak about ourselves in that way, right? So we, we're uh, indoctrinated to believe, publish, or perish, but then we're told not to amplify that work that you've done, right? So we are writing grants and we're kind of dumbing ourselves down, right? And we're being humble. And then we're not getting those grants, right? But we're still proving it and proving it again. And I think that that, that pressure, right, that publish or perish is certainly something that I was feeling. It's something that my colleagues have felt, have expressed it, uh, feeling. And it's certainly one that for me just left me feeling burnt out. And I appreciate the fact that you, you used that word earlier because it does become just kind of uh, a hamster on a wheel where you just feel like publish, 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 publish. I got to keep publishing. I got to keep publishing. And then for me, I want to be able to do that work, right? Not the publishing work, like, I want to be able to do that work in the community. I want to be able, right, to help those families in that. If I'm only publishing, now I'm perishing, right, because I'm not able to do that work. So I really had to just reconceptualize publisher perish, right? So I do still publish, of course. I am still productive in that way. But I've turned that around to peace and productivity to where I realize, listen, if it's not... (laughs) for the sake of my peace and my mental health, then it's not going to be able to happen. And I'm actually going to be less productive 
if I'm stressed out and burn out and questioning myself all along the way. Let me have a little peace and I can be productive and really just reframing the way I think about that. Publisher Parish is so common. I just cannot subscribe to it anymore because truly if all I do is publish, I'm going to perish is the way that I started thinking about that. Um, so really just you know, maintaining that peace of mind. Yes, being productive, but knowing that productivity looks different for different people. For me, productivity is the times that I'm able to spend with families, the time that I'm out in communities, even the time that I'm spending mentoring students in my lab, right? That does end up with community-based programming and then that does result in manuscripts that grad students help me with or write publications that I'm able to write with even community organizers and uh, community practitioners, right? So I'm integrating them into the productivity and into the publications that we're doing. Um, and for me, that's what makes it more productive, right? So now I'm not just me writing and working on my own, it's a team of us. And that's what allows us to, um, yes, reconceptualize publisher pairs, but also actually be more peaceful and productive. I love that you have flipped that into, if I'm only publishing, I will be perishing. I will. Um, I literally love that. Uh, it I, just happened as we were that talking. Needs to, I need to like disseminate that more. And um, I also, it sounds like, in kind of overcoming this prove it again problem you're like okay i'm gonna prove it again and now you've ended up with this like amazing stockpile of pilot data and um exactly the strengths that you need to be successful in the grant writing process we need to have our own data you need to repeatedly show things and so it sounds like you've really been able to turn that pressure into a huge strength for yourself and i think that's amazing and that's we need to, I want to shout that from the rooftops. So you can like stockpile your own data. Like that is such good advice. Yeah. And I also think it's amazing in that it sounds like identifying on this more applied side of the basic to applied science spectrum that you've really been able to um, reconceptualize, publish or perish into saying, well, where I'm going to make a difference is in communities. And I'm going to learn from communities, new things to research, new questions to ask, new ways to help people. And so if I'm out there translating science and putting it into the community and improving lives, that in turn is going to make me more productive along with this collaborative network that I have in, and mentorship that I have in my lab. So that's such amazing advice. I think you've really turned it into this like feedback loop of success in a lot of ways. And it sounds like you've really taken some of these things that may differentially affect women, um, like the prove it again problem, and you've really turned that into a mechanism of success. Yeah, I definitely, I always say, so there's that saying that you build a house with the bricks thrown at you, but certainly if there's a barrier that you identify, step on that thing and just use it to catapult and jump off. So if you do have to keep proving yourself, then keep proving yourself, right? If you do have to get a team of people to survive and just to make it in this place, make all of you guys productive, right? Make all of you guys impactful, get all of you working on the same project. And that's when you're able to accomplish these, these really huge things. Um, one of the manuscripts that I'm working on right now that I've been working on for the longest, right, is one that I've been doing with community members and staff at a community-based organization. And it is taking longer, but 
when I tell you that it's going to be one of the most impactful papers that I've done, it's because we have integrated so many different voices into it. Um, and really just having that true desire, right, to have their voices into academia and into the literature now. I do think once it's out, it's going to be impactful for that very reason. But you're right, right? We can't, we can't do it by ourselves. We certainly need to always remember why we're doing this work. Otherwise, it, it does become difficult. So um, that is one thing that I do um, pride myself on is that ability to identify that barrier and then to say, all right, we're going to use this and we're going we're gonna to use it to our benefit as well. I think that's great. And what you just said about having a diversity of voices makes your paper more impactful. I think that is so insightful and it's true in business as well. Like we know that businesses have increased productivity um, um, and increase profits when they have a diversity of voices um, at leadership levels and having different different opinions and different innovations and different lenses. And I think that contri- I think that's something that's interdisciplinary and it follows suit in our field as well. Having different voices and lenses in our research makes our research more impactful and more well-rounded. Right. We see, <laughs> you just made me think of all of the, um, I'm thinking about H&M. I think that was a while ago, but all of the culturally insensitive things that we see that happen and people are saying like, who was in the writer's room? Who was in the advertising circle? Like, how did this make it to the media? Why weren't there these diverse perspectives around the table? And that is what you see is that when there's only one voice in the room <laughs> and you go out and you try to be impactful across a very diverse nation, it, it oftentimes doesn't work, whether that's in messaging, whether that's in business or sales or in therapy and in cognitive behavioral treatments and in neuroscience and in the way that we do assessments, right? We have to consider within group differences and between group differences and diversity, right? And heterogeneity and all these um, kind of constructs that we become familiar with in psychology and all the different ways that we learn to answer questions um, as community-based researchers. I think we're able to start to see the benefit of that and integrate it into our science as well. Definitely. And I think it's it, this kind of gets at that that idea as well that has recently last few years has been kind of been getting increased attention. This um, this trickles down when we have women um, successful women in academic positions when we have a diversity of voices in academia. That um, I really think that that and I love to hear your thoughts on this. How this kind of trickles down into healthcare at a basic level because for a very long time, for instance, men were yeah. well men get more grant grants and when they get grants they get more grant dollars and right then, right and i kind of see this as a major trickle down effect wherein like you know you know for a long time women were not included in research studies and now what we're seeing is that medications are not as effective for women um, wow. wow and I, I had one researcher for instance we were kind of talking about this that wondering with how depression has is diagnosed more in women and wondering if uh, we should kind of be looking at looking at gender as a predictor of depression and how if it's actually more balanced, we think that women have depression more, but is it actually just that we're being diagnosed with depression more because our symptoms are more likely to be perceived as emotional or a psychopathology than a physical problem? And right. Do you know the answer to that? I'm not yeah. Sure. Some of the work that I'm recently becoming interested in is whether or not some of our symptoms are a product of 
kind of our coping strategies and our coping mechanisms. So strong black women schema, for example, is one that says that we are the caretakers, that we have to work twice as hard as women, right, to take care of our families and to just succeed in business, in society as well, right? So from that, that also means that we don't ask for help when we need help, right? But does that also now mean that we feel hopeless or helpless, right? So is it that we are subscribing to these norms that society gives us and we are working to live up to those ideals? And is that by very nature making us depressed, right? And, and is that um, what leads to some of those differences that we see and you're absolutely right in that it makes perfect sense that the society that we're navigating is the way that we're navigating society. And for me, I think that what I've learned is that that's reality, right? So what does that mean? That means that I have to respond to that by knowing, oh, <laughs> I need to ask for help and I need to get it from a lot of people. And I need to also be able to provide that help. Right, so that means that I gotta be able to take care of myself. I gotta rest, I gotta unplug when I need to unplug. I gotta take that warm bath when I need to take that warm bath, right? Because otherwise I'm not able to help other people. Otherwise I'm not able to help myself. Otherwise, right, I'm perpetuating this very same cycle that says that, right, taking care of other people and not asking for help is what leads to, right, not taking care of myself or not, not physically being able to take care of myself. So even me in my third year on faculty, I was in the hospital, I had a kidney infection. Why do you get a kidney infection as a perfectly healthy human being? It's because I'm sitting behind my computer working, publishing or perishing, right? <laughs> yes. Right? And it's yep. not until you make that switch that now I need peace. I need peace and productivity, right? That is to say that, sure, I'm gonna work at a leisurely pace and I'm gonna close my computer and have a glass of wine with my girlfriend, right? Or we're going to, yes, work, but we're gonna work over lunch, right? Or we're gonna work poolside, right? So just thinking about how we can be sure to, yes, maintain that productivity and yes, be super women and take care of everyone and take care of people around us, but also take care of ourselves. And that I think has been one, impactful and necessary, but also right, necessary to spread and to let other people remember because they do right have those values but remember the benefit of taking care of ourselves too and would you say that that's how um you have been able to overcome this other reason that a lot of women get pushed out of academia which is kind of this this tightrope as well where we have to walk between you know if we have in order to succeed and thrive at a pi level or in academia we have to be disseminating our research, confident about what we put out. We have to be assertive in getting grants and getting what we want and getting, you know, and being productive. And um, for women, you know, if we are assertive or bold, we are not likable. Oh, we, yeah. How do we overcome that? Yeah, yeah. Girl, I don't know. I'm still trying to overcome it. But... <laughs> What I'll say is you get around people who are just like you. You get around people who are assertive as well. You get around people and you amplify each other. So one thing that I have uh, noticed and that me and my friends do and that I think is very beneficial in terms of letting funders know about the work that we're doing, letting our 
colleagues in our department letting tenure review committees see a paper trail of the work that we're doing online is to on our social media talk about our work and amplify our work but that also means that right you're right if it was just me saying i'm great i'm great i'm great it does start to look a little weird right but you have people around you who also think you're great right because you think they're great and you know each other are great and you support each other's work so now it becomes oh i'm amplifying her work and check out my friend and check out my other friend right and that certainly i hadn't thought about it in that way until you just talked about it and that's crazy that's the 2015 article you need to share that with me um but certainly i would say that we just talked about it in terms of decolonizing academia right so we just talked about it like no one can see my cv why does that matter right <laughs> the work that we're doing in terms of writing articles isn't getting to people in the community so we're also you know doing research spotlights and research summaries online but that's also to say right that funders are now able to see that work that community members are now able to not just think that researchers are coming to our communities and taking from us and not giving back now we're giving back as well right we're talking to them about research and we're able to let them see the results of their research and we're letting them participate in writing up those results in those presentations and i think that's that's really what allows us to like you said overcome barriers that we face and getting tenure and in getting funding and in getting recognition but it also does truly make our work more beneficial and more impactful across communities definitely and especially to be able to disseminate one of the things i see as a major issue is that when we write papers and we publish them it's not a lot of the findings end up in the community and whether that's just dissemination or actual interventions being put into place Right. Um, and having kind of this goal of in amplifying other women's voices and in amplifying our research, we're able to further disseminate that work, which is impactful for science. And so I especially love that because it does kind of take the publisher parish and kind of flip it where it's like we have to be disseminating this work and improving lives in order for it to be impactful. And in doing that, it's you might be publishing less and have less of these metrics of citations right. and right. things that are important and numbers that quantify us. Um, but the less research that we do is more impactful research. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I will say that hopefully, right, I'm still a baby in my career, but I will say, right, I haven't not been successful. So it's working to some, to some extent and you as well, right? So keep doing what you're doing and hopefully in, 20 years, we'll be able to write that new article that says this is how women have overcome these uh, prior barriers across funding and across yes. here. And super promising. Um, I think it was Elsevier put out a gender report for 2020 and that women publishing have actually in psychology and nursing um, are outnumbering men publishing, which is- Yay! Awesome. I just submitted, um, I, so I did say, right, that I'm in a writing group. It's called www. Uh, working women write, um, and we just put uh, submitted for review a manuscript about our productivity over the pandemic and how our writing group has been able to continue supporting each other. Like people have said, I haven't, but some of the people in the group have had babies over the pandemic, and we've been able to support each other and make sure that we all are maintaining productivity with childcare, with 
can you see these boxes back here? I'm moving right now. So housing instability. So right, all of the stressors that people say that they're navigating across this pandemic. And you, right, you told me you took an extra class across the pandemic, right? So just thinking about ways that we, as women, right, are just so used to overcoming these barriers um, <laughs> that exist. And the pandemic is a strange one that we've never seen before, but somehow, Right, it is very promising in that we're still able to be productive and not perish. <laughs> yes, and I'd love to just hear if you still have some time. That what do you what did you think were the best sources of support or advice that you were given from your mentors that has helped you be so successful in your grant funding? And um, what also what advice would you give? to people who are going to become mentors to ensure that we're doing? Um, wow. I don't know that this would be advice that I was given, but I would certainly say that it's my experience and that it's advice that I would give in that a mentoring relationship is lifelong. No one ever told me that, but I'll tell you right now, my grad school mentor helped me with the million dollar grant I just got. My grad school mentor, so I'm changing universities right now. She helped me navigate negotiations. I practiced my job talk with her. I have had a tenure track position for four, like for four years. I am very much a PI. I'm a, a millionaire researcher and I still go to my grad school mentor today, right now to say, how do I navigate this? help me again, right? Help me. Asking for help has been so important. So I will say that I did get that advice, right? Ask for help and don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, but the advice that I would say is to allow that help to be lifelong and to understand that that help is lifelong. And that is to say, right, that I'm now able to help her, which is outrageous, right? So she has been in the field for so long and I'm able to talk to her about social media. She has a social media page now, right? So I'm able to show her like, yeah, you can put a research spotlight online and I'm able to give back to her in that way. But I'm also structuring my lab just like she structured her lab. And when I have questions about my grad students, she's the one helping me, right? Just understanding that mentoring begins before you get to grad school. Certainly your best mentoring relationships are formed in grad school and you should continue those. If you end up being a graduate school mentor, right, continue to pass that down. If you're not and you're working in any other role or in any other position, remembering that. So how can I be a mentor to someone else? And how can I start kind of building that lifelong relationship is that what we see is allows us again to continue to maximize our productivity and our impact and our ability to do that work right because your mentor is someone who's doing the work and who has done the work so just utilize them and then when you get the opportunity get back in the same way that makes so much sense and it's just, it's just really kind of also taking this idea that like research is independent and we have to be the first to publish and we have to do it quickly. And so it becomes very competitive, but in hearing this, it's, it definitely emphasizes the role of collaboration and giving back with, through mentorship. And just your, really, it sounds like the take home from this is you are not ever not a mentor, like you oh, have to mentor continuously in order to thrive. And I think that's such 
great advice, um, especially as a grad student. I know that it's right now we're in this phase where we have to, we want first author, like we want to put out in that way. And then making that transition to passing that baton and helping other people get their spotlight and then being part of their training, I think is so important. And I mean, this kind of, also, I want to spend like definitely, well, multiple minutes, but for the sake of time on your million dollar grant. Yeah. Congratulations. This is a huge deal uh, in our world for sure. And um, I think it's amazing. And if you're comfortable sharing, I'd love to hear what's your current grant funding. And I want to like shout these successful women from the rooftop. Like (laughs) this is how recognized and it's, it's a, it's a huge deal to get this amazing funding. And so if you're willing to share, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. So I actually have never, ever, ever calculated or thought about my grant funding over my lifetime. So I do appreciate that question. And I do think that it's an important one to say, right? None of this funding was gotten in isolation, right? So I'm PI on these fundings, but all of these uh, research projects that I've been working on are with other people and they all have mentors, again, (laughs) on each of my grants. But I do have uh, nearly $3 million in grant funding. So 2.9 mil that I've been able to secure across my career. And again, all of that has been through collaborations and through research teams. So the one that I just got, the uh, million dollar grant that I got from SAMHSA is for me, one of the most impressive in that every single human body on that grant is a woman. Woo! It is, is right? Amazing. Yes, it is. Awesome. And when I say human bodies, I mean, my project navigator is a woman. My consultants are women. My community advisory board is mostly women. Like, so my research participants, of course, are women and men and children as well. But my consultants are women, which is outrageous for me in that we've been so successful We're so passionate about the work that we do, and we are able to get out there in our communities and be productive, um, despite what we're talking about, these other barriers that exist across across academia, but also across society as well. So that is um, something that I'm really excited about and really proud of as well. That is so amazing, and that is going to change so many lives in the community, having those viewpoints, having those lenses, and also just at the academic level, um, you know, it's not in the community. I find that we don't, we don't often talk about grant funding and not a lot of people know about the importance of grant funding in our work and in our livelihoods and our quality of life. And so um, to everyone listening, the getting a grant like that and having it be all women that is so amazing that is like the living you know that is the living embodiment of like what i want to put in this newsletter that there are amazing women doing amazing work together as this collaborative community and it really sounds like um the main things that i'm getting is develop your network early like collaborate early mentor people who are still in the stepping stone stage, bring them with you to the top and continue your networking, continue your mentorship and use these people, um, use other women to help kind of lift yourself up to the top. And 
maybe then we can reduce that gap of, you know, women getting less grant dollars, women getting yeah. less grants and women, we need to cite ourselves too. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I'll say is that, um, so this grant is to connect community organizations that are providing services in trauma. So interpersonal and racial trauma that are providing services in HIV and substance misuse. But one of our goals is to spread awareness across Georgia about not only racial stress and trauma and racial socialization, but about the work that each of these organizations are doing. So we uh, we certainly, I hope, right across the next five years, we'll be able to, I don't know that people will know, right? We're not saying this is our million dollar grant, so they won't know that it's necessarily grant supported, but they will know about the work that's being done in the community. And a public health messaging campaign will be able to talk about racial stressors, racial trauma, how to be a good ally. So all of the things that we know, right, as researchers will help impact from racial stress and trauma um, and really disseminate that throughout the community. So I do think, right, that it's us, us women who have this idea and who um, know the importance of uh, increasing awareness, right, for accessing services that exist, um, but also for using strategies that we know are effective clinically across the community as well. That's so inspiring and I think really important work I, to disseminate that at the organization level and to, to be connecting and, and studying this is something that's a huge gap in our understanding. And I, it's so great to hear, just it's so positive to hear that there are, you know, we hear so much in academia about like the negatives. And so to hear of amazing women doing this work is so inspiring and I know that it's definitely I mean this is perfect timing on the tales of like having struggling with getting statistic results right now and going through oh yeah doing so much months and months and months of work to hit that stout hit the button run the run the results and it's not there and kind of what do you do with that and so this is so inspiring to overcome that from a grad student perspective yeah so what I'll say what you do with that is you take an evening to take a bath and to process Mm -hmm. and to accept right those feelings and then in the morning you get back to work right so you comb the literature you think about how you could have asked the question differently you think about right different ways that might be more impactful. You might think about, okay, maybe there were ethnic differences in these results. Maybe there were gender differences, right? You start to um, think about, right, how the same question that you had could be answered in perhaps a more impactful way um, or could be answered in a way to help more people or to tell about differences that exist or similarities that exist, right? You keep doing the work is what you do. But you have other people around you who say, right, keep going, you can do it. You have your supporters and your cheerleaders who process with you. And that's what lets you keep going. I have my friends and what we always do is anytime, and this is with paper submissions, grant submissions, anything that you're doing, you just spend an afternoon and you just talk crap about reviewer number two. Right. And then you address the feedback and you resubmit or you do whatever it is that you have to do, but you keep going and you remind yourself of the importance of the work that you're doing. Yeah, that's so true. And it, it's, 
in the vein of talking about reviewer number two, it's, it's, I was reading this. I remember my old mentor sent this to me. I think it was a year or two ago, but it was this push in grant funding. Now, now there's a big push to look at gender differences. And we were talking about the overcompensations that are occurring as a result. And this uh, woman had wrote an article on how she had submitted grant funding and they came back being like, you need to include men in your study. And she was like, my study is on how studying how drugs cross the placenta. So how do you suggest I do that? Straight out. Hands so, up. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, I love so you got to keep, you got to keep pushing and you got to just have a laugh session at some point about, about reviewer number two. Yeah. And yeah. Keep doing the science after. Right. Because they always will say something crazy like that. Yeah. And you got to just come up with new questions and, reapply right <laughs> like I'm hoping they're not on your committee this time <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for taking the time to do this and I think this is you know such an important topic and I'm so glad we got to speak about this and how to overcome these barriers and the importance of lifting other women up and amplifying other women voices so I think this is perfect thank you so much for doing this Thank you for reaching out. This was a ton of fun. I enjoyed our conversation and you were doing such great and amazing and important work. So please keep it up. And I will look forward to seeing more great things from you. Definitely. Thank you so much. We want to thank Candace Dwyer for allowing us to use the interview she conducted with Aisha. And we encourage you, if you're interested, to look for her article in Virginia Tech's Psychological Clinical Science Accreditation Systems October newsletter. Also, please find us on social media if you're not already following the Empower Lab on Twitter and Instagram. That's where you'll find many of our resources and also where you can reach out to us for yard signs and posters from our Racism Hurts public health messaging campaign. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Black and Empowered Podcast.